Hello, I'm Jerry Ford, and this is my podcast. Glad to have you along for another adventure. Tonight, I have an interview with Mr. Glenn Phillips, who is a critically acclaimed guitarist and composer who's released 20 albums over the last 50 years. Lowell George of Little Feet called him the most amazing guitarist he'd ever seen. We'll get to more about Glenn Phillips, but first, let's get bent. A little thing called Fix Whip. Thank you. 
bit music. A little thing called Fixed Trip. It's time now for Glenn Phillips. He was a founding member and songwriter of the Hampton Grease Band in the late 60s. He played with countless artists of the era, including John Lennon, Frank Zappa, The Grateful Dead, Fleetwood Mac, The Allman Brothers, and Jimi Hendrix. We've got Glenn Phillips on the line. How you doing, Glenn? I'm doing good. Tell me what you have been doing. It's been a long time since we heard music to eat. Well, I've, uh, you know, I've been a musician uh, for the last 40, over 40 plus years of my life. That's what I've done as my livelihood and how I've spent my time. And, and the first band I was in, as you mentioned, uh, the album Music to Eat was done by the Hampton Grease Band. And that group was together from 67 to 73. Uh, we had a double album on Columbia Records that came out called Music to Eat, which was reissued later in 1996 and has sort of become a, a cult favorite, I guess, is the way to describe it. Um, after the band broke up, I started putting out solo records. I put out what I've been told was one of the first independent uh you know, albums, uh, an album called, they sort of predated the do-it-yourself movement. It was called Lost at Sea, and it came out right uh, January 1975. Uh, that record was picked up by John Peel in England, who played it a lot on the BBC, and that led to a, a record deal with Virgin Records. They put that record out. I went over to England, uh, stayed with Mike Oldfield for a week. We ended up touring with Steve Hillage. I put another record out with Virgin. And over the years, I've put out a, a dozen albums under my own name on a variety of labels, from Virgin to SST to Shonaki Records to putting them out myself. And that's basically what I've been doing for the last 40 years, is just doing my own music um, exclusively. Let's go back and talk a little bit about uh, the, your early days, since you brought them up there. It's uh, music to eat. Uh -huh. I read that, and I've been told in hippie folklore that it was the label's worst or worst selling album. Well, at the time, <laughs> the, the rumor was it was the second worst selling record it, it, at that time, and it was beat out only by a yoga record. Okay. Now, again, this is this. I don't know if we can still lay claim to that distinction <laughs> you know this many years down the road but at the time you know columbia records didn't know what to do with the album it was a very esoteric unique eccentric band um we you know the songs for the most part would oftentimes be 20 minutes long and they weren't just like there were certainly jam elements to the music but there was also a lot of the music was very orchestrated the band was very heavily musically involved with what we were doing. We spent an enormous amount of time working on the music, and the lyrics were oftentimes pulled from very disparate sources. For instance, I had a song called Halifax. It was a 20-minute cut that opened up the record, and our singer uh, rarely wrote lyrics or had lyrics to sing, and so we'd work this, these songs up, and then out of frustration, I'd just go, well... I wanted him to have something to sing, so I'd just go sing this, and I pulled an encyclopedia off the wall and opened up to a page of Halifax and started changing the lines around the encyclopedia to fit the song. So it's a basically a 20-minute song about Halifax, Nova Scotia. 
and that's sort of the this weird dichotomy of these highly uh, intricately involved musical compositions juxtaposed with these completely sort of off the wall lyrics and an off the wall vocalist, and I, and that's what gave the band its own unique bent. And Columbia Records did not know really what to do with it at the time. Well, how did you come to be signed by Columbia Records? We um we were very popular in Atlanta where we played, where we were from, Atlanta, Georgia. We were the, uh, I'm sure you've heard of the Allman Brothers and the Allman Brothers playing uh, Piedmont Park, for instance. It was an equivalent sort of of the Grateful Dead playing, you know, uh, the Golden Gate Park or wherever, you know. But in a, we were the band that started that in Georgia. We went a year before there was an Allman Brothers. We started this whole scene in the park, playing for free in the park, developing this huge following. Um, from that, the Allman Brothers got in touch with us and asked if they could come and open up for us at the time. Now, obviously, they went on to much bigger fame than we ever achieved, but we were a, a popular band. We ended up playing at the Atlanta Pop Festival as a result of all of this, and we got a tremendous response there. Columbia, there were Columbia executives there who, although they didn't know what to really make of the band, they did know... they. They were aware of the fact that we got this tremendous response from the audience. So they thought they were seeing some sort of musical history in the making, and they wanted to be in on it. You know, this was in an era when when a lot of these labels were coming from this very conservative mindset, and this this thing that we think of now as 60s, you know, hippie-ish music was, was all new to them, and they didn't know what to make of a lot of it. So the, the fact that they didn't know what to make of us wasn't that unusual because they didn't know what to make of any of it anyway. So they just signed us, really not knowing what they were getting into. And once we started sending them the tapes of this record with these 20-minute songs, they just had no idea what to do with it. And, it, you know, another one of the fun... Uh, the, the, uh, there were some people... We've been told, we were told at the time that there were some Columbia uh, salespeople that were actually marketing at the stores as a comedy record, filing it along Don Rickles and Bill Cosby, because they just didn't know what to make of it. Okay, what inspired you guys to be that bent? Well, uh, you know, it wasn't a conscious effort. It was it was done very much just intuitively. Uh, the two guys who wrote the songs were myself and Harold Kelly. There were two guitar players in the band. Harold and I were the two guitarists, and we wrote all the material. We had a very strong uh, bond with each other, and it was a very insulated environment. We you know we practiced at the basement of his parents' house. We grew up together, we went to high school together, we got together when we were very young, and it wasn't that we were consciously trying to be different, it's just that we had no interest in being like anyone else. It just wasn't anything that crossed our minds. So we just, it was it was practically a, a clubhouse environment where you're, you're making this music with your really close friends, and you're just doing whatever comes natural, creating from whatever sources you have at hand. And when I look back at it now, I can see that what we were doing was sort of a, would be classified as, as found art. 
you know, like kind of going out and making art from stuff you pick up off the streets. This is sort of what we were doing. Harold and I were writing. The music was, like I said, very involved, very uh, complex and intricate, and an enormous amount of time was spent on it. But because our vocalist wasn't really a lyricist, the lyrics themselves started to just be this grab bag of anything and everything um, sort thrown in from basically I would, you know, songs of mine, I, I, I like I described earlier, I'd pull an encyclopedia off the wall and pull the songs out of, out of that. Uh, one, another, a song of Harold's that Bruce didn't have lyrics for at one time, he just picked up a can of spray paint and started reading the, 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 um, the instructions on the can of spray paint. Those became part of the lyrics. They saw songs about our friends, just various wide variety of these sources. So it was a combination of musically being very focused and very driven and lyrically not being driven, not having somebody who was driven to have something to say and then just sort of creating this sort of found art, anything goes approach with the lyrics and combining those two things. So it wasn't ever a conscious effort of let's be different than everybody else. It was more just let's just be ourselves, and that's all we cared about. What bands were you listening to during this period? Well, um, a wide variety of bands, certainly the popular bands of the era, um, for instance, when we first started out, we were, uh, when we first started playing, and like I said, this was the first band, when we recorded Music to Eat, I had only been playing guitar four years. What year was that? Uh, the record came out in 71. I guess it was recorded in 1970. The first bit, when we first started out, we were more or less like uh, one of these suburban blues bands as opposed to an urban blues band. You know, we were very influenced by the Paul Butterfield blues band at the time. Then that led to a discovery of, you know, people like Howlin' Wolf, Sonny Boy Williamson, Muddy Waters, B.B. King, Albert King. We were certainly uh, listening to the music that was currently popular at the time, bands like The Doors, Love, people like Tim Buckley. Um, we also listened to a lot of what was sort of the free jazz movement at the time, people like uh, Coltrane, Pharaoh Sanders, and Charles Mingus, people like that. We'd listen to country music. We'd listen to Indian music. We'd just listen to everything and anything. We were just into, into just you know, into it and absorbing it all. You know, they, they say when you're uh, young, you learn languages quicker. You know, your mind acts more like a sponge. You can pick up different languages when you're younger. That's what we were like musically. Harold and I were very much like that, deeply into it, just absorbing everything and anything we heard, any place. We were just hungry for it. And I'm sure that all those things played a part in what our music became, although the, the message that... Um, now, Harold's not alive anymore, so I'm kind of speaking for him and myself, but I think this is true of both of us. It just wasn't... It was never a desire to try to sound like other people we were listening to, because the thing that struck us about music, and certainly I, this has always been the case with me, is people who sound like themselves, you can hear their identity and their personalities in their music. And that's what always drew me to people, uh, to their, to what they did, to bands or, you know, solo artists or whatever. Very distinctive, individualized, a 
actively pursued. You seem to have a very original approach to the guitar, at least in my ears. <laughs> Are there any uh, guitarists that you had found more inspiring than others? Uh, there were certainly... I mean, there were and still are lots of guitarists that I hear that, I, that I'm that i very uh, drawn to, impressed by. As far as trying to sound like them, I don't think there's anybody that's ever been like that. I mean, when I grew up, I mentioned the Paul Butterfield band earlier. When I was first starting out playing, uh, Mike Bloomfield was certainly uh, a, a guitarist that I did love then and still do now. Harold, who I played with. You know, I think probably the people that I played with had more of an influence than national names. As far as the guitar playing, I just have always tried to use music as a way to listen to your inner voice. Just what comes up. I, I, um, You know, when I first picked up a guitar, I've described the experience as being that I picked it up and hit the strings and I heard a... It was like a floodgate opened up inside my mind, and my mind was filled with sounds, and I've spent my life trying to pursue capturing those in sound. And to me, music is a uh, music can be a number of different things for different people, but for me, what it's been is sort of a a, a conduit or a way to your subconscious to, to uh, opening up things, opening up doors inside yourself that you frequently weren't even aware of were there. You know, that you don't even know are there, but somehow through the process of playing music and making music, these things open up inside you. So for me, it's always just been a thing of just letting this stuff come out and trying to capture it in sound. Have you had trouble finding other people to play with, to share that concept with you, or does that well, um, jump on board pretty quick? Everybody, everybody is certainly, that's, that's not where everybody is. I, I I guess what the difference is is, you know, um, when we when we started out, there were a lot of people influenced, for instance, say by groups like the Beatles, in terms of wanting success. I, a lot of people would have what I used to refer to as a Beatle fantasy. You know, they'd see the Beatles and they go, "I want that. I want that fame. I want this attention. I want that." Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. But there are, there are also a lot of people who play music for other reasons. And, for instance, like myself talking about why I play it. So the people that I've hooked up with musically and connected with are people who are just more prone to that mindset just naturally. That's what draws people like myself and Harold together when we were kids or the guys that I play with now. I've played with Bill Ray, for instance, who plays bass with me. He's been... He's played on every record I've made since Lost at Sea, my first one. A drummer, John Boissier, who's played on my last three albums. Jeff Calder, who I've played with for decades. Uh, Mike Holbrook, who was in the Grease Band, still plays with me. Jerry Fields, uh, who played drums in the Grease Band, still does things together with me. You know, so there's sort of like this group of people you find over the years, and you connect with them on that level, and it becomes, they become sort of your family. You know what I mean? They it, it's a different, a different thing than um, how, what, how, what are we going to do with our music? What's our goal? How are we going to make money with this? What's going to be this? That's not really the issue. The issue is getting together and, and creating something real. I like that. It's more of a family than business. I like right. That. I like that. Sounds good. Okay, let's talk about your new album that you've got out right now. 
Well, the last album uh, is called Angel Sparks, and it was a... You know, I, I found as I've gotten older that I spend longer and longer making these records. I guess you get more focused on what it is that you want, which is great. Your vision becomes clear, but then attaining that becomes often a time-consuming process. And that record took several years to make, and it's it's just the process that I go that I do now, and I just I just don't put them out till I feel like it's attained what it is that I want it to be, as, as abstract as that sounds. And that record was very much, for me, about dealing with uh, loss. People uh, that I was very close to had died in the process of making that record. My mom died. One of the percussionists uh, got a brain tumor who was playing on the record. And so I was experiencing these feelings of loss, and that what Angel Sparks refers to is this, uh, this sort of... the a way to describe the impact that people have in your lives oftentimes after they're gone, of how they affect and influence in you, influence your lives, sometimes in ways more powerful when they're gone than even when they're there. And which I was trying to sort of describe that experience musically and not in a morose, morbid, melancholy way, but in a uplifting way, which, which I found oftentimes that through loss, inspiring things can happen that you don't expect and people pass on things to you in ways that you don't expect uh, that first record that I mentioned earlier that I made on my own after the grease band broke out broke up which was called lost at sea was very much a reaction to my father's suicide and it, it was a very frustrating time for me and that that making that record was a way for me to deal with that loss and it and it taught me something important that life that loss is part of life and it becomes important and essential for the people who are left behind to do something positive with this experience so what are you, are you okay now the angel sparks uh-huh and the grease or hampton grease band reunion i've seen some of that on the internet right and we've got posted on the site for that matter uh, are you doing tours we got shows coming up to look forward to? I'm playing. I We're not touring as much at this point as much as we used to. Um, you know, it's, it, it's changed a lot. The, uh, the, the, the sort of booking shows, putting these long trips together has become more difficult on an independent level than it used to be. Uh, it used to be much easier to put these things together. Also, there's certainly no denying the fact that Myself and the other guys in the band are older, and it just takes more out of you. And I'm also working on a new record at this point, so we are still playing live, and I enjoy doing it very much when we do it. I don't feel quite as driven to get out on the road and play all the time like we used to. And probably that's probably a result of just getting older and having done, done this for 40 years. The Grease Band is not playing. We did that one reunion show, but I don't know that we'll ever do another reunion show. I, I have no idea if that will ever happen again. That was the only time we played together in 33 years since the band had broken up. What prompted the reunion? Well, the uh, Bruce, the singer, has not wanted to play with the band. And prior to Harold Kelling dying... I wanted to do a show with Harold, 
that we were all unsuccessful in that regard. And I wanted to do something with them before it was too late. And I also wanted to see if maybe doing something musical with him could somehow force him to have to be in contact with me to such a degree that I would have an influence on his drinking, which it, it didn't help. I, I made the effort, but it didn't work. But so we did this show uh, without Bruce. He didn't want to do it or be involved. And we, it was everybody in the band, and Jeff Calder from the Swimming Pool Cues, who also sings in this side group that I have called the Supreme Court. He and I have always written songs together. We did a show, and we just did, uh, we did it on my 50th birthday, and it, we just called the Music to Eat tribute. At the end of the night, we played uh, the material for Music to Eat with Harold. And people liked the show a lot, and it was a big thing, but we, it was just a one-time thing. We weren't going to do it again, but... Not long after that, Harold died. And then Bruce contacted us for the first time in 33 years, and he wanted to do something, so we did the show. But he's a very um, remote, distant personality, and after we did the show, he just slipped back into being distant and remote again, which is certainly his choice. You know, that's he's a grown man. He should do and not do what he wants to do. But so I, it's just, uh, I don't know that that will ever happen again. It was surprising that it even happened once, to be honest. So your goals as a musician at this time are basically just to fulfill your own needs in the studio and maybe sell a few CDs? Well, to just, again, create music that I feel like is real and that's something that I want to leave behind. I don't know that selling CDs is much of a realistic goal anymore. I don't think that anybody's selling many CDs. Uh, you know, the music business has changed so much, it uh, so drastically from what it was when I grew up. And I've just, uh, as far as having any, any expectations about how many CDs I will or won't sell, that's really not the issue for me. The issue is that if I'm going to make something... I want it to be real, and I want it to be as good as I'm possibly capable of making it. And that's, that's for me, that's been the goal all along. That's never changed. That's a sign of a true artist. Well, either that or somebody who's really stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> well, that could be the same thing. Yeah. That could be. I've often said in, in many conversations like this that, how archaeologists judge a civilization is by their artifacts, their art, and things of that nature. And what in the hell are they going to dig up? You know, Tupperware and Britney Spears after gone. You know, it's kind of scary. Exactly. Well, it's 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 interesting because you know when I grew up, there was the music scene, and I was felt part of a a a, a living, breathing music scene, and and it was an exciting thing, and I. I, I didn't know that I was part of that, or really con wasn't consciously aware of it till it was sort of taken away. And you know, I've seen, what's happened is corporate America has just taken over the music business, and it's decided you know what records are going to be uh, sold, what artists are going to be sold has become dictated by a criteria that I find rancid and tickled and not appealing and so for for a lot of people like myself it was sort of like where did the music scene go and it's been really interesting going on MySpace and connecting with all these people 
and you start getting these friends. I get these friends' requests, and I start, you know, I, I initially begrudgingly went on MySpace. A, a fan of the band set up the site, and I, I just thought, well, I don't know if I want to get into this. And then people started writing me messages, so I thought, well, I'll respond to the messages if they're sending me stuff. And in the process of doing that, I started going around and listening to all this music. And I was just floored by how good it is, how much of it is, is and, and how this music scene is still alive, and it is still real, and there is still a musical community, and that these people are going to MySpace the same way the Grease Band went to Piedmont Park when we were kids starting out because we didn't have any place else to play. My split, MySpace is the place they have to go now because music is controlled. What we consider popular music is controlled by very limited corporate interests. And it shut all this other stuff out. And you start going around on MySpace and you start hearing this stuff from from 15-year-old kids to people my age to people in between making real, living, breathing music. And you find it there, and it's really been a positive experience for me because it's, it's sort of rediscovering the fact that this musical community is not gone, that it's still alive and that it is still there, and it's been a really good experience for me. You've been listening to Mr. Glenn Phillips of the Hamptons Grease Band. Make sure you're tuned in for our next episode when I present part two of Mr. Glenn Phillips. Till then, take care. Thanks for being there. I'm out of here.